In today's sessions, we will be addressing questions about the relationship between consciousness and the perceivable world. Why is consciousness so important? What are the implications? Can consciousness contribute to resolving real-world crises? Our speakers today will address these questions from their respective fields of expertise. A little bit of housekeeping. I've been asked to repeat that there is extra standing room in the balcony for those of you who might wish to uh, go up there. The conference staff is here to make sure that your day is comfortable and that you are relaxed and happy so that your minds will be completely pliable and open to insidious indoctrination into heretical ideas. So therefore, if you need anything, please just approach any of the, the staff. Dinner and entertainment at 6 o'clock this evening. Our first speaker will be setting the scene with an overview of how we know anything. Here to enlighten us is Professor Howard Resnick, who received his PhD at Harvard in Sanskrit and Indian Studies. He taught at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. He was a visiting scholar at UCLA, taught here at the University of Florida. His books are published by several prestigious university presses. He was the first Westerner to translate and comment on the Bhagavad Purana from within the Vaishnava tradition. He has been a practitioner and teacher of bhakti yoga for over uh, 50 years, which means he started at age three. And he has been a guest speaker in more than 30 countries and speaks five languages. So here to address us in English, I assume, is Professor Howard Resnick. Thank you very much. I'd first like to thank Brenda for a very interesting remarks yesterday and Professor Hameroff. Uh, I also didn't understand a lot of it, but I also thought it was brilliant. And uh, I understood enough to really appreciate it. So, um, to, to explore the topic of, the conscious, of consciousness and science, I begin with a simple and hopefully <clears throat> uncontroversial Dictionary definition of science. Science is an intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. Scientists tend to assume that the physical world follows discoverable natural laws and thus behaves within causal relations that are quantifiable, deterministic, and thus predictable. And some little blog, LiveScience.com, adds that, quote, Anything considered supernatural does not fit into the definition of a science, unquote. Indeed, the dictionary defines supernatural as a manifestation or event attributed to some force beyond scientific understanding or the laws of nature. So consistent with all that, a um, science of consciousness, to be a science in the normal sense, must focus on deterministic, predictable laws governing consciousness. But here a problem arises. Most of us are convinced that as conscious beings we possess free will. We are not mere machines. Human life is not fully deterministic in the same way that the life of a machine is. It is precisely for this reason that those branches of science that study unconscious things are called hard or precise sciences, whereas those that study human behavior and consciousness, such as psychology and sociology, are considered to be soft or only approximate sciences. However, philosophy, history, and our own consciousness show us that neither hard nor soft sciences, as sciences, can ever fully describe reality, including consciousness. 
Because as I will demonstrate, we live in an irreducibly bi-dimensional universe that is both physical and metaphysical. And science, by its own rules, can only study the physical, not the physical, not the metaphysical dimension of reality. Sorry if I'm talking fast, but uh, too much information. Thus, if consciousness itself proves to be ultimately a metaphysical entity, then neither hard sciences like neurology nor soft sciences like psychology can give a complete explanation of consciousness. So what is the metaphysical realm, life's second dimension beyond the physical realm? And I'm going to give evidence why it definitely exists objectively. Guy Kahane, who teaches philosophy at Oxford, states, does God exist? Do we have free will? Are there subjective moral facts? These are familiar metaphysical questions. The Britannica, remember there used to be printed encyclopedias? <laughs> the Britannica states, Metaphysics was a term used by early students of Aristotle to refer to the contents of Aristotle's treatise on what he himself called first philosophy, which Aristotle had also referred to as theology because God was in that system as the unmoved mover. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy accepts that the question of whether mind is a material mechanism subject to deterministic laws or whether it is something else that entails free will is a metaphysical issue. And the Stanford Encyclopedia, I hope you've all been impressed because I dropped the word Stanford. <laughs> so they say, philosophical problems now considered to be metaphysical problems include the problem of free will or the problem of the mental and the physical. And the SCP, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, makes a key logical point. Ancient and medieval philosophers might have said that metaphysics was the science that studied being as such or the first cause etc. A philosopher who denied the existence of those things would now be considered to be making thereby a metaphysical assertion. This is a very key logical point, and that is, first I'll state it unintelligibly and then try to explain it, that if we affirm or deny a, a claim or a proposition in a particular epistemic domain, I'm using the word epistemic because epistemological has too many syllables, and epistemic means the same thing. So to affirm or deny a claim in a particular epistemic or a particular field of knowledge uh, is to locate oneself to make a claim within that same field. For example, let's say there's an algebra equation and you're an algebra teacher. You mark it right or wrong, you're making a claim about algebra. If you make a, let's say, if you consider that a theory about why the American Revolution took place is correct or incorrect, you're making a claim about history. In the same way, let's say you're teaching in a public university and you say Zeus is actually the god of sky and thunder. And of course, obviously, when people gradually understand you're not joking, you'll be fired. Because you're preaching really... However, if in the same public university you say that Zeus is not the god of sky and thunder, and actually there's all kinds of neurological and historical reasons why people actually were stupid enough to believe that, uh, then you're just a scholar. Even though by denying that Zeus is the god of sky and thunder, you are equally making a religious claim as if you said he was the god of sky and thunder. So in public universities, and basically in all, I, I suppose, non-religious universities, you are free to preach metaphysical religious positions as long as they're negative, but not positive, even though they're within the same domain. So that's just a little logical point there, which is usually not considered in our incredibly brilliant philosophical age. 
So, similarly, to claim that consciousness is wholly material is to make a metaphysical claim, not a scientific claim. You cannot scientifically claim that consciousness is wholly physical and not metaphysical because you're making a metaphysical claim. You can give all the scientific facts, and I love science, by the way. I'm a science fan. When scientists are really doing science, I love it. I mean, actually, for, for three really important reasons. I mean, first, when I go to the dentist. Um, in other words, both I and, and I'm sure any rational person is deeply grateful to all the pain and suffering that has been alleviated by science. Also, purely from an intellectual point of view, I, uh, science has enriched our lives immeasurably. And uh, science has actually saved us from very dangerous, uh, violent forms of, of uh, religious fanaticism, actually. Which is, there's a whole history to that. Although sometimes becoming itself a dangerous form of religious fanaticism, which I'll also explain. So, uh, anyway, uh, so this, what, what is called materialism, philosophical materialism, I will attempt to show, entails inescapable philosophical and historical problems of great magnitude. This bears on the topic of consciousness, since the key issue is whether consciousness is simply matter and, or a neural epiphenomenon of the brain or a different kind of thing which is essentially metaphysical. Now I'll give some evidence. Uh, so, the highly influential Declaration of Independence declared, in a self, declared uh, uh, as a self-evident truth that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator. Whoops. No, uh, what is that? Uh, so, so much for secular democracy. All men are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. Now, now Jefferson was very intelligent. John Kennedy once said that when he hosted some... Uh, Nobel laureates at a White House dinner, that this was the greatest gathering of intelligence at a White House dinner since Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> but anyway, um, self-evident is a key epistemological term, uh, which was uh, sort of introduced by Aristotle. The idea is that if you make a claim about anything, about anything, history, science, God, whatever, you can, people can demand proof, and they can demand that you verify the proof of the proof. In other words, like if you say water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, uh, and someone doubts it, you put a pot of water on the stove, stick in a thermometer, it boils at 100 degrees Celsius, someone said, that's not pure water, you put some chemicals in the water. Or that's not real mercury in the thermometer, so you've got to prove that. Then you have to test the water testing chemicals. So you can always be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. And Aristotle pointed out you escape an infinite regressive proof by taking a stand earnestly and declaring that something is self-evident and it proves itself. So uh, to give an example of a self-evident, a claim of a self-evident truth which cannot be independently verified, certainly cannot be empirically verified, is that there's a real world outside your brain. Now, Descartes raised the point that one can logically, and by logical I mean you can say something without contradicting the laws, you know, without contradicting logic. For example, if you say, I just saw a round square. No, actually you didn't. So we don't have to empirically see if there's a round square around us. We know that there cannot be a round square because, or a square circle because of the, just the mean of the words, logic forbids it. However, saying that as a, uh, Descartes did, that we are simply 
brain controlled by an evil genius who makes us imagine there's a real world outside of ourselves, that does not contradict logic. It's very eccentric, but it does. But it shows that without contradicting the rules of logic, one can be radically doubt that there's a real world outside your mind. And in, in modern philosophy, it's called the brain in a vat problem. You know, you're a brain in a vat being kept alive and hooked up to a supercomputer. What this means is because we can doubt that there is a real world outside our mind without contradicting logic, therefore, um, you have to make a foundational assumption, another key epistemological term, in order to do science. You have to assume that there's a real world. And you have to also assume, as scientists do, it's called PUN, the, uh, anyway, the Uniform Laws of Nature. Uh, you have to assume the laws of nature operate more or less uniformly throughout the universe. You have to assume that. So why do we assume, so why do scientists and why do most people assume that there's a real world outside our minds? Because we have an experience of the world that convinces us, uh, the quality and nature of that experience convinces us that there is no other reasonable explanation other than that there's a real world. When you wake up from a dream, Here's kind of this platonic language. When you wake up from a dream, and during your dream, you were absolutely convinced that was a real world. When you wake up, you make an instant comparison, or it takes a little while sometimes, and you become convinced that actually your waking consciousness is ontologically superior to your dream consciousness. In other words, it's more real. So how do you do that? Why do you do that? You can't prove it's true. You can't empirically prove that your waking consciousness is superior to your dream consciousness. But you make that assumption because it is self-evident to you that that's the case. So in every field of knowledge, uh, one has to begin with a foundational assumption uh, that something proves itself. Now, of course, there are anti-foundationalists because in academic philosophy, no one has ever said anything in history that at least you know 9,000 people didn't try to problematize. But the fact is, as far as I've seen, every anti-foundationalist theory itself is foundational. For example, the most, what I think is, sorry, philosophical madness, certain forms of philosophical postmodernism, they state, for example, that, that there are no great truths, which of course is a great truth. So the, 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 the incredible ability to contradict themselves is one of the hallmarks of postmodern philosophy. So for postmodernist philosophers like Rorty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that's their foundational great truth, that there are no foundational great truths. Or following the Copenhagen Agreement that uh, we can no longer say that physics exactly, or certainly quantum physics, exactly corresponds to an objective reality. That's really the way reality looks. Uh, that was mentioned last night. Uh, they adopted, they rejected the idea of precise objective correspondence between words, theories, and an objective physical world. I mean, doubt of the physical world, uh, not just radical doubt that it doesn't exist, but, but, but more uh, moderate skepticism. To what extent does our perception through our senses, to what extent does our reason, to what extent does our science correspond to an objective world? Uh, people have been doubting that. Scientists and philosophers have been questioning that for centuries. But, but ultimately, uh, foundationalism, I think, is, is really all-pervading, and the anti-foundationalists are all actually foundationalists, if you just look at what they're saying. So, a little philosophy. Uh, so I want to bring up the point that um, 
One of the basic points I want to make before I'm dragged off the stage because I couldn't fi finish everything is that um, if you believe, I'll get back to the, to the self-evident proof that we live in a bi-dimensional universe. Just as we make the foundational assumption that there's a real world outside our minds, otherwise you can't really do science in earnest. In the same way, we have certain metaphysical views that we hold to be absolutely self-evident. In fact, so self-evident that in designing and establishing and to some extent preserving our system of government, which is secular democracy, or qua plutocracy, the idea is that um, we reject all empirical science and instead found our whole society on an, a metaphysical, empirically unprovable assumption that we're equal. Democracy is based on the notion of equality, at least in the modern formulation. And all empirical science, all of it, shows that we are not equal. We're not equal in terms of our intellectual abilities, mathematical, artistic, athletic. We're not all equally beautiful, which was a great frustration to most of us in our teenage years. So the point is, you can't even imagine an empirical test which would show that everyone is equal. And yet we reject all empirical science and found our society on a metaphysical, self-evident, foundational assumption that we're equal. And, and Jefferson, who was a smart guy, in responding to Hume's skepticism, uh, David Hume's radical skepticism, said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. He, he, he appealed back to Aristotle, that we're created equal. Now, one of the main things that Hume explained, and that sort of still stands, is that you cannot derive an is from an ought. In other words, uh, actually, I'm sorry, you can't de derive an ought from an is. Sorry, David. The idea is that you cannot derive a metaphysical fact from a physical fact. Let's say, for example, someone commits a non-controversially non evil act, like someone kills an innocent person. And there are no extenuating circumstances. You didn't push a really heavy person off a railroad bridge to stop a train to save 10,000 children or something like that. It's, it's just non-controversial evil that someone killed an innocent person. Now, if you study that physical act, I mean, in terms of forensic evidence, in, in terms of the physiology of the killer, in terms of everything, there is no empirical fact that will reveal to you that the act was evil. And yet we hold the act to be evil. In fact, I mean, God forbid, if you, if you see such an evil act performed before your eyes, it will traumatize you, and, and for the rest of your life, you know, you'll carry a burden from having witnessed that type of trauma, as survivors of the Holocaust do. And so, when we say that that act is evil, that, it was, that genocide is evil, that, for example, in the 19th century, a popular social Darwinian theory, that actually we should let poor people starve to death because that's progress. Darwin proved it. Survival of the fittest. I'm not saying Darwin endorsed that, but that was a popular intellectual academic interpretation of Darwin, social Darwinism. So when we say these things are evil, we do not mean, we absolutely do not mean that the blind laws of nature and nature's evolution have neurologically wired us to believe a, a fairy tale. I mean, think of the moral implications. That it's really, genocide is not really wrong. It's just a fairy tale. We're neurologically wired to believe a fairy tale. 
So once you transcend fairy tales, once you stop believing in the tooth fairy, once you stop believing genocide is wrong because we live in a material world in which there are no metaphysical realities, uh, what kind of world are we going to get? And so our, even Kant, Kant, by the way, in his attempt to defend metaphysics against the onslaught of uh, Hume's skepticism and the powerful, almost hegemonic rise of science, he attempted to defend metaphysics and his critique of pure reason in a way that he basically threw metaphysics under the bus. Uh, I don't know if I'll have time to get to Kant and uh, his disastrous defense of metaphysics which sort of killed metaphysics in, in the academic world. But anyway, even Kant, with his tragic epistemology, even Kant believes that our moral intuitions are self-evidently true and cannot be rationally denied. So our understanding that genocide is bad, that racism is bad, that uh, it, it's bad to murder innocent people is just as epistemically central and profound and self-evident as our understanding that we live in a, in a real world out there, that, that our senses give us reliable information, something which has practically been more philosophically contested and at times refuted than our moral instincts. And so therefore what you have between physics and metaphysics is epistemic parallelism. We have, if you look in terms of the epistemic structure, in terms of empiricism, we have a self-evident foundation and we build on that self-evident foundation because if we don't, as Aristotle pointed out, we, either, we are either pushed into an infinite regress of proofs or we descend into circularity, which the philosopher Quine thought was no problem. But anyway, that's another issue. We won't have time to get into Quine. So, um, in the same way, the epistemic structure of certain basic metaphysical facts, such as there is such a thing as good and evil, genocide really is bad, it's not a fairy tale, it's real. Genocide is real, really bad. Or for, a fact, or, or for example, equality. The fact that there is a profound and true objective sense in which we are equal and therefore there's a true objective sense in which uh, brutality toward other sentient creatures or racism or sexism, there's a true and objective sense in which they're wrong. If you want to give up all that and say, no, the only reality is uh, matter and you can murder and rape and steal and do whatever you want and that is not objectively wrong or bad, if that's the world you want to live in, if you think that's a real world, then, then you're a, a good materialist. And if you don't believe that and you're a materialist, you're a philosophical hypocrite. But not a problem today. So, uh, God, so much... To, so much to say, so little time. Let's say, you know, so many pedestrians, so little time. So, I mentioned Darwinism. I'm not attacking Darwin. As far as I know, Darwin was a nice guy. I mean, he had a theory, and it's, of course, as uh, it, it's become very, very important in the world. And so, this is not against Darwin. I'm talking about the uses of Darwin. I'm talking about just what happens in the real world when you put forward a powerful physical theory and... Uh, and, and you live in a world in which scientists are saying that there are no objective metaphysical facts. When you get that toxic combination, when the world goes out of balance, you, you get disaster. And the same thing happens, by the way, when you get out of balance on the other side. If you look at the Middle Ages, if you look, I mean, I, mean, I don't want to be like, give like a Christian bashing talk. 
But it just so happens that uh, the ancient world, the classical Greco-Roman world, was very much uh, syncretistic in its metaphysical views. There was something called the, um, the uh, what, Anyway, the, the Greeks and Romans strongly interpretatio greco, uh, the interpretatio romana, it was an idea that when you encounter other cultures and they have another religion, you do comparative studies and you find how what you're saying, they're also saying in just with different language, different words, different names of metaphysical deities or whatever. And Pliny, the, the, who probably composed, wrote the first dictionary in history, I'm sorry, the first encyclopedia, Pliny, very early on, uh, said in Latin, I'll say in English, that actually uh, there, there, there are, there, there's one reality but just has different names. You find the same view in the Rig Veda, the earliest Sanskrit text, perhaps the oldest book in the world, that, that the, the absolute or, or the, the ultimate metaphysical entity is invoked by different names in different ways, but it's, but it's actually just one truth. And so into this highly syncretistic, you could say tolerant world, much like our own with some exceptions, uh, you get this extremely fanatical uh, group that comes in and says that you know only we worship a living God, everyone else worships dead gods, we have a true religion, everyone else worships false religions, and uh, you know that could ruin your whole day. So, so, so the Romans, of course, are not justifying the Roman reaction. The Romans believed, you see this in the writings of Tacitus, perhaps the greatest Roman historian. Tacitus believes that this poses an existential threat to culture, to civilization, this type of violent fanaticism. It became violent as soon as it had the power to, to be violent. But not just in any way the cruel persecution of Christians by the Romans, which were sporadic and, and, and tended to be local. They, they weren't all pervading, whereas the Christian persecution of pagans after Constantine was not sporadic, was not local, it was categorical, and it was everywhere. And it basically succeeded. So from there into the Middle Ages and into, let's say, even up to the uh, Renaissance, and then the powerful, violent uh, response to the Renaissance, Giordano Bruno said the wrong thing, got burned at the stake. He was a great scientist. Galileo had to say, I didn't really mean it. So I have to say about Galileo, because scientists will tell us for millions of years about Galileo and how dangerous religion is which is, by the way, called the warfare thesis. I'll tell you, that's in the 19th century, where, where, where science and, and humanities developed this warfare thesis that, that you have to declare war against religion because it's the enemy of reason, it's the enemy of science, it's a threat. So, so where did that fanaticism come from? It fructified in France, by the way, in the 17th century, 18th century, 1700s, because unlike England, France was a very fanatical country. You had Louis XIV. Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes, which was a after the, uh, the French kings were sort of slaughtering Protestants to try to make a theological point. Um, finally, at the end of the 1500s, they had this Edict of Nantes, which said that Protestants could live in France and not be slaughtered, which was kind of progress. And then Louis XIV revoked it. And so in France, you had this totalitarian, you had this totalitarian uh, uh, political system, which was totally allied, you know, you know, in bed with uh, a totalitarian religious system. Whereas in England, I went on all of English history, where the, starting with Elizabeth I, who, you know, declared a type of tolerance, which is kind of new, a new thing in, in Europe, and then getting into the, uh, 
the, the Glorious Revolution, 1689, the, the rise of parliamentary government over the king in England. The Newtonian synthesis was extremely important. The fact that Newton was the best scientist of his day and also deeply religious. Deep, he, he saw himself engaged in something like bhakti yoga. You know, he was engaged in an act of devotion. So you get this Newtonian synthesis which allows England to live in peace. You get a balance of the physical and the metaphysical. Whereas in France, you have this complete imbalance. You have this murderous, uh, uh, frankly, uh, metaphysical fanaticism. Murderous metaphysical fanaticism because the kings were also, you know, had, had, had metaphysical rights, divine right of kings. That was a metaphysical endowment, not to speak of the church. And so in response to this murderous fanaticism on the metaphysical side, France comes up with an equal and opposite murderous fanaticism. The French Revolution, which was, I mean, you should know how bad it was. They, by the way, Robespierre kind of came up with the word terrorism and the concept. So if you're a terrorism fan, you know, honk. But, but that, was, that was the French Revolution. So you get this dialectical process. By the way, the first person to introduce the notion of the pendulum effect was Galileo. Actually about Galileo. In his first trial, he was actually convicted but not burned. They just said like house arrest, but he had a beautiful house, so you know. Anyway. But then it turns out there was this, there was this cardinal, Bernini I think is his name, who actually defended Galileo who argued that, no, we should not convict Galileo. Leave him alone. Let him do his science, for God's sake. Now, that cardinal became the next pope. And so what did he do? He said, you know, hey, Galileo, we're cool now. So he, he told Galileo that even though this first trial had, had, had ordered that Galileo could no longer print, he couldn't publish. You know, it was literally publish and perish. And so... <laughs> So Galileo couldn't publicly speak on all of his dangerous ideas. But this new pope said, hey, buddy, you can write a book. It's okay. He was, he was trying to help Galileo. So he told him to write a book explaining heliocentrism, geocentrism, the hottest issue. And, you know, but just present it neutrally. Don't, don't be polemical. Just give the different points of view and let rational people make their own decision. Cool pope. So what does Galileo do? He writes a book in, 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 in a typical genre of the time, which is a dialogue. You know, Hume wrote dialogues, people wrote dialogues. And so in the dialogue, there's one character named Simplicio. It's written in Latin, which means simpleton, which means dope. You know, some like clueless dope. And the Pope had asked him, hey, if you don't mind, you know, because the Pope was actually kind of a thinker and he studied these things. He said, I've got some views, so maybe you could include my views. So what does he do? Galileo has Simplicio, the jerk, the stupid guy, give the Pope's views. And everyone knew those were the Pope's views. Everyone knew it. And so basically Galileo saying the Pope is an idiot. Very diplomatic. So the Pope said, game over back to your house and that was that so scientists never tell you that story that if Galileo hadn't have been a jerk he wouldn't have you know he could have continued doing his science so uh, but what I'm trying to introduce here is a concept of uh, it, it is a you could say it's an uh, epistemological full word dialectic 
that just as we know, dialectic is thesis, uh, antithesis, synthesis. So we find historically, and, and I don't have time to go over all this unless all the other speakers would generously cancel their talks, but <laughs> anyway, the, um, actually I better see what time it is here. Okay. What we find, just like Hegel talks about the historical dialectic, what we find throughout intellectual history, which is often, most of the time, seriously affected by, of course, political, economic history, military history, has a powerful effect on intellectual history. And what we find is that um, the Western world is just swinging between, it starts off, what, what kind of set the pendulum swinging was this intrusion of murderously fanatical metaphysics in what had been a syncretistic, tolerant, super multicultural Europe. And during that phase of multicultural, syncretistic, physical, metaphysical, balanced Europe, people don't go crazy. Scientists or proto-scientists don't feel that to do their science they have to bash religion, they have to become philosophically atheist or, or, or agnostic, and that, or methodologically atheistic because, because religion is the enemy of rational thought and science. They don't think that way. Everyone's living in peace. You know, physics and metaphysics are working together to mutually explore different uh, dimensions of reality. And, and as I wanted to show if I had time, if you look at the scientific revolution, all the guys who did the scientific revolution, whether you're talking about Copernicus or Brahe or, or, or even Galileo, who said the Bible is authoritative in metaphysical things. It just, you know, it tells you how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. That was Galileo's point. Newton, I mean, all these people, they were all religious people. They, they weren't fighting against, I mean, Descartes, who was a super scientist. He's just kind of remembered as the guy who had the bad idea of, of substance dualism, which is, which is now coming back, and one of our speakers is going to talk about that. But he was, I mean, I mean, his contribution to science, is, it takes a whole page. I mean, it's still used in the most sophisticated science. So, so when you have this balance, but when you have this, this murderous metaphysical extremism, at first, people can't do anything because actually just after Constantine, within a hundred years, the Roman Empire collapses and people are just fighting to survive. And it's just, these are very dark times, chaotic. At any moment, you can be invaded, raped, murdered. It's just, you know, no one has time for these philosophical things. So then, finally, a after this kind of chaotic aftermath of the fall of Rome, you, you, you really shoot into the dark ages. People are, literacy almost vanishes. But as Europe in the high Middle Ages starts to come out of that, ironically, one of the seeds of the Renaissance was planted by the Crusades, which are kind of evil, because that was the first contact Europe had with the outside world in a long time, except maybe Marco Polo. For example, uh, when Vasco da Gama, around 1500, landed on the shore of uh, southwest India, everyone in Europe believed that in India everyone was Christian because an apostle of Jesus went there and miraculously, hagiographically converted everybody. So they were so ignorant. So, so anyway, that, that was the seed, information coming back, that they're actually, and the Islamic world, which they were basically, you know, trying to murder, uh, was actually in their own renaissance. The renaissance started in the Islamic world. Then you get the printing press. You get the printing press, and, and you start to get literacy, because before the printing press, you had to be rich to own a book, and not speak of a library. I mean, libraries for, was, was for multimillionaires or billionaires or the church. So then, 
Something else happens in Protestant Reformation. As I say, Luther was the most unwilling, inadvertent uh, uh, promoter uh, of modernism that could ever possibly exist. He rejected science. He rejected philosophy. Uh, 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 Luther's mottos were sola scriptura, only scripture, the only valid source of information. Sola faith, the only faith. And yet Luther promoted epistemological egalitarianism. It was, it, it was Luther that said that we have to get back to the Bible's you know, affirmation of, of a priesthood of all believers. Because with the printing press and with Luther uh, uh, sort of producing a, a German that everyone could read, everyone could start reading the Bible. You don't have to go through priests. No one read the Bible. The first guy that translated uh, the Bible into English was murdered, was executed by Henry VIII. By, by basically revealing a state secret, namely the Bible. So you get, you get this egalitarian epistemology. People read. You start to get different opinions. And, and, and you get this explosion of science, unfortunately, to some extent caused by the colonial period because you need faster boats. You need faster boats. You need uh, better weapons. You need better cartography. And so it's actually colonialism that, that starts to cause this explosion of science. You go into the 1600s, and science starts to take off. People start to read the Bible and say, wait a second. The priests tell us this, but it's not in the Bible. They have all these mystic sacraments that kind of look like the, this very same magic for which priests are killed, uh, uh, witches. You know, people are accused of being witches and killed. And so then you go into the scientific age, and by the time science gets enough power, they go on the offensive. It's payback time. And they start intellectually you know, in the universe, academically persecuting religion. And, and you, anyway, there's Gibbons who says the fall of the Roman Empire was caused because it, because it became Christian. You have Marx that says that, uh, you know, religion is a drug that makes people stupid and delusional. You get Freud that says religion is, an, a, you know, a, a serious emotional disorder. It's basically psychopathology. And, I, you know, I have a list, but you go on and on and on. It's like a real, what we used to call it when I was a kid, a dog pile on religion. And then, of course, they ultimately hit the brick wall science. It's, it's you know, it's like in football, you know, they're driving, they're driving down to the 90 yard, you know, they, they, you know 90 yards and 11 plays or something. And then some guy's running on the one yard line, fumbles the ball. So basically, they ran into this brick wall of quantum mechanics. And, and uh, professor, uh, the professor last night explained much better than I can uh, all the problems, you know, you know the weirdness. And, and so you, you see these movies about quantum mechanics. You know, that's my level. I'm an amateur. Where you see all these top quantum physicists talking about it's strange, it's weird, it's mysterious. That's the exact language that science used to smash magic and religion. So the very language that science used to defeat its epistemological enemies and establish itself as the reigning power, the only, you know, the, you know, the way, the truth, and the light for epistemic certainty. Yeah, no one comes to epistemic certainty unless they go through us. They use those same words to describe their, their, their most advanced physics. And of course, that unleashes a resurgence of, of magic and, and, and religion. You know, all those books came out in the 60s, The Dancing Woolly Masters, The Tao of Physics, and all that. And so here we are now. So I'll try to conclude now. But if I can't, then uh, go ahead and hate me. Anyway, I will conclude. But So basically what I'm trying to say, and I've got like tons of information. I didn't have time to get in here, really. But you can wait and see the movie. So 
anyway, there, I mean, there's just like thousands and thousands of things I wanted to say, because there's actually proof and evidence for all these things, logical, historical, and all that, philosophical. But what's really needed today is an epistemological balance. We have to restore the classical balance between physics and metaphysics, which you also mentioned last night. And uh, because although I profoundly admire and, and, and take advantage of in, a, in thousands of ways physical science, they're not the gatekeepers of objectivity. They, I would say, the gatekeepers of a certain realm of objectivity and knowledge, but they're not the gatekeepers of all knowledge. And uh, fanatical materialism, that's because there, there, there is no rational materialism, because there is self-evident evidence that we live in a bi-dimensional universe, and as some philosophers, even atheist philosophers have said, if, if there actually are objective moral facts, then there, there must be a supernatural explanation. The greatest Western skeptic, Hume, acknowledges that. It's in our Declaration of Independence. It's the foundation of our political system. It's the foundation of our moral views against sexism and racism. So, one minute. So therefore, if we want to, you cannot, my, my argument, which is of course very strong, and I hope not too belligerent, is that given all the facts, it's very difficult to be a rational materialist. And it's also very difficult, I also think it's totally impossible to be a rational religious fanatic. I think religious fanaticism is necessarily, logically, irrational. And so what we really need is to get away from fanatical materialism, fanatical metaphysicalism, fanatical religion, or, or whatever you want to call it, and restore the natural, rational balance between the physical and metaphysical working together. The scientific revolution was all done by people that used their religion to get out good ideas for science and, uh, and, and so on. And anyway, I'll stop there. Thank you very much. And sorry I couldn't tell you most of what I wanted to tell you.